Thanks for listening to the Q&A podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Hello and welcome to uh, the first ever River's Edge Q&A podcast. Uh, my name is Matt Deason. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, and I'm here with my buddy Matt Karsh. Hello! Say hi to the people. Uh, we are uh, really excited. Many of you know that we uh, just recently, within the last two weeks, started a new series in which we uh, encourage the church to read the scriptures cover to cover Genesis to Revelation in one year, which takes about 15 minutes a day. And we'll be studying through it on Sundays in a year as well. Uh, but one of the things that we wanted to make available during that uh journey that we're on together is a number that people could text in questions because we know that the Bible is uh, amazing and inspired and it transforms us as we read it. And yet we also realize that while the Bible uh, answers a lot of the big picture sort of universal human questions that we wrestle with, in the process of answering those questions in terms of God's existence and human purpose and meaning and where the universe is headed. In the process of answering those questions, it actually raises a whole host of other questions in our minds. And so uh, we wanted to provide a space where people could uh, ask genuine questions and just invite us to kind of wrestle as a community with the questions uh, that you guys have. And uh, the questions have come pouring in and um, we are excited about them. Some of the questions we'll actually answer in the course of uh, our Sunday gatherings, and other questions are more obscure, and they're questions that uh, might be pressing on people's minds, but questions that we would never naturally answer in a year-long series on the Bible. And so what we wanna do is create uh, sort of an extra space for uh, people to wrestle with questions and uh, right now we're, we're kind of in going getting into genesis and talking about science and faith we're hoping to do a few podcasts uh, exploring the intersection of science and faith uh, so that might be coming as well but uh, really we want to start off the first episode by just saying a few words about uh, the value of questions because we think that this is a really uh, beautiful thing to be able to open the scriptures and um, grow in our in our knowledge and experience of God, but also to feel like we have the freedom to ask questions. And I know uh, for myself, this has really played a role in my journey and even coming to know Jesus in the first place. And so for those of you who don't know, I was raised uh, in what I would describe as sort of a, a secular atheist home. Uh, naturalism was sort of the default uh, kind of worldview, but uh, we were raised to be just, hey, try and be very open-minded about the world and ask really good questions. We were just raised to be inquisitive. And uh, as a result, I was really drawn to uh, science as a discipline, which I'll probably talk about again at some point uh, on the podcast, but I was really drawn to science because I was uh, allowed to ask questions uh, all the time. I was uh, just encouraged to uh, ask questions uh, about the world and, um, and, and seek out their answers and just follow the questions kind of wherever they go. And so when I, uh, at the age of 20, 
I started uh, becoming more curious about uh, faith and Christianity and, hey, what's all that that all about? So as a freshman in college, I was actually invited into an on-campus Bible study, and I showed up, but I didn't own a Bible. Uh, I'd never really been exposed in, in a meaningful or lasting way to any sort of faith community. And so all of a sudden, I was thrown into this, this Bible study, and we're, you know, talking about the Gospel of Mark or whatever. And I couldn't even figure out what was going on. I was just an outsider. I was sort of disoriented by the whole process. And what are you guys studying? And there's shepherds and prophecy. And who's this guy, Jesus? And what do you think he did? And uh, luckily, I, I ended up in this environment where I felt really free to ask questions. And so I just brought all my questions to these guys that I was having the Bible study with. And hey, how do you how do you know that this any of this is true? And how, how do you know if God is real? And what does that look like in, in your life? And you know, what is this passage all about? And and just ask tons and tons of really difficult questions. Uh, and those, in, in kind of wrestling with those questions uh, and, and getting really honest answers from people, all of that was, was this really integral part of my journey of being propelled into uh, the reality of God and actually coming face to face with Jesus was the, the fact that I had to feel free uh, to ask these questions. I had to ask the questions and I had to seek out their answers. And uh, I would make the argument that uh, God loves it when we are willing to come to him with our with our honest questions and seek out their answers. And I think we see evidence of that in the scripture in something as simple as uh, God talking about festivals in the Old Testament and saying, hey, when, when your children ask about these festivals and ask what this stuff means, here's what you should tell them. And we just kind of read through the passage. But if you slow down and think about it, he was assuming uh, that, that all of these Hebrew children would be asking lots of questions. Dad, why do you believe that? Mom, why do we do this thing? What's this festival about? What does it tell us about God? And, and then you even see Jesus as uh, a boy in the temple. We get this little snapshot of him in the temple and um, he's dialoguing and and exposing his brilliance even as a 12-year-old. Uh, but part of that process for him, it says he was asking questions and and seeking out their answers and actually growing in his uh, wisdom and, and knowledge and, and all of that. And so when I look through the scriptures, I actually see sort of this invitation. Uh, God's not afraid of our questions, I guess is the way that I would put it. He was actually assuming. I, I think he created us with a certain amount of, uh, of curiosity. Uh, and we weren't supposed to bury that the second that we kind of signed on to a life of faith. We were actually supposed to use these questions uh, to propel us into God. And I think that brings me to my last thought, and then you can kind of share whatever you want. But uh, I, we, we're aware that we're in this sort of um, post-modern, post-Christian world in which I think uh, deconstruction is happening all the time. And it's very common, I think, especially for uh, younger uh, people being raised in the Christian faith to all of a sudden um, be um, coming with their questions and sort of breathing the air of this, and attitude of the secular culture and then coming into the church and saying, well, wait a second, why do we do what we do? And why do we believe what we believe? And how do you know any of this is true? And we have more and more, I think our young people have, myself included, we just naturally have questions. And um, what I think is really sad is that um, somewhere along the way, there was this stereotype that was sort of generated that said that uh, if you have faith, 
to have faith in a sense, it means that you should just go to church and not ask questions. And I think that was, um, it just a tragic sort of uh, stereotype to be generated uh, because I, I think we, we just, we just have to. And so what we want to do, and one of the reasons we created this Google number and everything is because we want to sort of take the questions head on and wrestle with them as a community and just sort of admit sometimes, yeah, we don't really know the answer to that. Uh, but it's a really good question. And because uh, I think the the opposite, the tendency is to say, no, let's be really defensive. Uh, let's not allow for questions. Let's just tell people to have faith. And then the only place or outlet that people have uh, to ask their questions and pursue the answers ends up being sort of this cynical, skeptical environment uh, with, within the post-Christian culture. And if that's the only place you can go to answer your questions, well, the people who are going to help you answer them um, aren't really the people who are going to have a clear view of the real Jesus or a, a view of how to um, kind of put the pieces back together again, so to speak, after they've been picked apart. So all that to say, um, I'm a big fan of the questions. I love the questions that uh, you guys have been sending in. I encourage you to keep them coming and we're excited to answer some of them. So uh, Karsh, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Before. Well, just add, I'll add two things. So, um, cause I guess I'm going to be the, uh, so sound like the academic here, but the, the two things I think are important when we think about how we understand scripture. One is it's the doctrine of perspicuity, which is the idea that we really are supposed to be able to understand what goes on in scripture. We're really, God is communicating something for a purpose to us in it. Um, it's not meant to be this ethereal document that we can't approach. It's meant to be something that actually uh, affects us. And so there's, there's an aspect of this, which is us getting at a better understanding of what God is saying. And then the other side of it is we can actually spend our whole lives studying scripture and never get to the bottom of it. Right. So the, the point in, in doing things like Q and a isn't to say, well, because I have a degree, I have all the answers. I actually have way more questions after going through uh, seminary than I ever thought I would, but that's a good thing. in that, that journey, like you were talking about, just a normal part of the Christian life. And so we want to provide resources for some of that. And I'm really excited to answer some of these questions, probably because we'll probably disagree a little bit. <laughs> I hope, I hope there'll be some slight disagreement, but that it won't, you know, come Scare to blows. Anyone, yeah. Or, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you uh, hear the microphone fall, it's because <laughs> one of us punched the other. Yeah. You'll be able to tell from, from recording. Um, all right. Why don't we, why don't we jump in and uh, tackle our first question? Uh, we are currently, if you're reading the Bible in a year, you're reading through the book of Genesis. And I think most of my questions personally are kind of come in the first chapter or two of Genesis. But even if you make it through the first two chapters and pass kind of the talking snake in the garden and all of that, uh, there's still a lot of questions that follow. And um, there's every time you read the Bible, you're going to notice new things that you never noticed before. And so we have, we're, we're getting a lot of questions about Genesis. And uh, here's one of them. It's, uh, what is a Nephilim? Why are males referred to as sons of God and females called daughters of men? Um, and Karsh, I don't know if you have, if you want to yeah. pull up the passage and kind of read it in context, just for people who, who aren't familiar. Yeah. So it's important to, to note. So this, um, this kind of question of sons of God, daughters of men, and the Nephilim comes from Genesis chapter six. 
Uh, Genesis 5, for reference, is all about um, the generations. You know, it lists out who was who, and then uh, the last verse of Genesis 5 is about Noah. And then we get to Genesis 6, which is introducing the situation on uh, on the land or on planet Earth. Um, and is this before the flood or is this after? This is right beforehand. So this okay. is giving the context for the flood. So kind of here's Adam, here's his son and his sons and his sons exactly. and his sons. And then we get down, down to, to Noah. Yeah. And then Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So it says in uh, Genesis 6, says, When human beings, this is NIV, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. And it says in verse four, this is the really famous verse. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men of renown. What is going on? <laughs> what is, what is the Nephilim? On? Where does the Nephilim come from? Yeah. So when I, when I, probably when I first read the passage as a new Christian, I, I think what I pictured in my mind was like, like a, a centaur or something, mm. you know, this like thing that's like, oh, it's like half horse, half human or yeah. like something out of, you know, Lord of the Rings or something. Or those rock things, give yourself a Noah, the Russell Crowe <laughs> Noah, those things. That's kind of, yeah. That's what you pictured? Is well, like the, I've seen that movie. Angel, but, oh, okay. But, Yeah. But that's, that's, that's not, not what they are. You know, that's not what they are. Okay. okay. Yeah. So um, maybe I think it, because the sons of God and daughters of men thing comes first, it kind of makes sense to tackle that yeah. question first. So what does the passage mean when it says uh, the sons of God began to marry the daughters of men? Um, are they both talking about human beings? Are the sons of God something different than human males? Or what are the theories there? Yeah. So the, the main question comes around how you translate, um, not only word for word, but like, what, what does it mean? So sons of God in Hebrew is Beneha Elohim, which is literally sons of God. And you have that phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament in various forms. Um, the other key place where this happens is the beginning of Job, where um, Satan comes among the sons of God to present himself before the God Yahweh, the creator God. And so the question really is, well, what are the sons of God? And in many traditions, that is understood as angels or the spiritual beings, uh, maybe little G gods who are kind of hang around the creator God. And that's that's one, one interpretation of sons of God. And so if you understand sons of God to be like angels or these angelic spiritual beings, well, then the passage is kind of odd because... The sons of God, these kind of spiritual angelic beings, they see that the daughters of humans, then in this reading, we'd understand daughters of humans who just be regular old women who are apparently pretty and these spiritual angelic beings like them. And then they go and they uh, married them and have children with them. And the, the, the reading that is oftentimes comes out of that is that the Nephilim are this kind of half breed, half spiritual, half human things that come out of that. This is, this is what happens when an angelic being procreates with, with a, a with a human female, right? You get a Nephilim, right? Exactly. That's one of the theories. Yeah. So like if a, like if a horse and a donkey procreate, they have a mule. 
I see. If a if in this reading, if the if a son of God and a daughter of man have a baby, they have a Nephilim. That's one reading, right? Um, and they're notable because they're they're they have these kind of superpowers almost, or they're gigantic, or they're really big, and they're. Well, well do we do to to jump forward to the Nephilim? Do we get any other information about them in the scriptures, or is this kind of the only thing that we get? Well, so when I first read that question, there's a really easy answer to what the Nephilim are. Genesis 6 tells us they were heroes of old men of renown. Men of renown. Men of renown. That's it. Um, no, they only come up in one other place. It's in uh, Numbers 13. And uh, it, there's not a whole lot of information about it. It doesn't add to the conversation. No. No. Okay. I mean, it's simply a point that they're they're like these warriors. Right. Um, but I, I we can't overstate the point that it actually says right there in Genesis, hey, these were men of renown, mm-hmm. um, not like half men, half something. Right. Um, which, and and I've heard it argued, some people say, hey, the Nephilim weren't necessarily the offspring of the, the sons, uh, sons of God, daughters of men combo. Um, do you think that that connection is pretty clear in the passage that it was definitely the sons of men, sons of God rather, and the daughters of men that created the Nephilim? No. And so that's part of the problem is that the, they appear both in the same passage, but people draw a connection. That's not, it's not explicitly there. Mm -hmm. It just says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, they're actually around in numbers 13. And it just says they were there when the sons of God went to the daughters of man and had okay. children by them. Right. And actually, linguistically, it seems like the children of this sons of God, daughters of men, they're separate group of people, things or whatever. They're separate than the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be just context for what's going on in the world before the flood. Right. Okay. So you've got the sons of God and the daughters of men procreating separately as something else going on. You have the Nephilim right. is, is one of the theories. Um, the Nephilim are explained as being men of renown, mm-hmm. might, mighty warriors. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so that sort of, this sort of answers the Nephilim question, right? Can we kind of set that aside and yeah, say, I think so. Rather, re- <laughs> regardless of whether they were the offspring of this combo or not, they were men of renown. If you think they were and warriors, uh, if you think they were the the offspring of this combo, um, then that would probably further inform how you read sons mm-hmm. of God, daughters mm-hmm. of men. Um, and so one of the theories I've heard about the because it's it just the language sounds odd. Mm-hmm. Um, if the if human males are called sons of God, then why wouldn't you call the females daughters of God? Or like, why wouldn't you use the same language to describe both? And so one of the theories that I've heard um, there is that um, sort of the the early leaders or first kings, if you will, uh, it was really common for ancient kings to to set themselves up as the son of God, mm-hmm. right? Or sons of God. Mm-hmm. And so like Caesar is, is a really obvious example. But if you go way, 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 way back, way before Caesar, um, into the ancient ancient world, it seems like that was a relatively common practice that I kind of have a, a right to kingship. I, I am this divine mm-hmm. sort of son of God. So would that be one potential way to read the passage that the sons of God are kings who have, you know, kind of set themselves up as sons of God and they're just marrying regular human females? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one way to read it, which seems, um, 
it actually seems to fit the the language of the text. And um, the, really the third option that I've, again, if you link this question of who are the sons of God, if you link it in Genesis to Job and other places where, where it appears, um, sons of God, it, it isn't explicitly like an angelic spiritual thing. It could be kings who claim this status for themselves, or it could be a statement about that group of people's relationship to the creator God, as opposed to the other group of people who exists. So if you trace this concept back to Genesis 3, there's this promise after the, the um, curse that, well, after, so after the fall in Genesis 3, there's a promise given to Eve saying, hey, you're going to have a seed and the seed of your, your seed is going to crush the head of the serpent, right. but the serpent's going to have a seed too. Mm-hmm. And you actually see this narrative play out through the entirety of scripture, okay. which is there's a seed of the woman and there's a seed of the serpent. Right. And so, a descendant of Eve, right. uh, who we know to be Jesus, but they would have no idea. Right. You know, Eve might have thought, hey, then the first son I have is going right. to be the guy who, right. who ends this thing. But an offspring of Eve is going to, uh, you know, have, have em- you know, there's going to be enmity there, but, yeah. uh, but eventually crush Satan. Right. And so, and it's not, it's not, I don't ever think meant to be understood purely in a, in a genealogical sense, because the serpent, how does the serpent have oh, like a seed? Right. But the idea okay. is that there's these true groups of, of offspring from the original archetypal story that they're, they're living in contrast to each other. So you see this with Cain and Abel, then you see it play out with Isaac and Ishmael. You see it play out in multiple ways, but in Genesis 6, sons of God, daughters of man, it could be a statement about the sons of God being these people who are, you know, the the right righteously living, they're living in right relationship to God, as opposed to this other group of people who have neglected their creator God. So they're just known as the daughters of men. And there's this, this um, intermarriage at that point, mm-hmm. that that maybe is what's going on. And so it might be a statement in the context of Genesis 6 to say, people have so lost their relationship with the creator God that, that now even what, um, what was a a crucial part of the community, which Mm -hmm. was our relationship to our creator. Now that doesn't matter. So we're going to find these beautiful women and then we're going to have kids by them. So that's another way to read it. Okay. So, cause we'll have to kind of recap, tie this off, um, and, and move on to the next question. But you, you would be saying, Hey, Adam was like a son of God created by God. And then his offspring could continue to trace down the line. And maybe they were all considering themselves, Hey, we're, we're, we're all coming from, we can all trace our lineage back to God. We're part of this righteous line of descendants. And then there was another section of humanity that had, had kind of distanced themselves from that. Yeah. It's well, it's the sort of people like Cain and then Lamech and, and the flood's coming. Yeah. So we have to like picture, fill in a lot of the blanks with incredible evil on, right. on the earth. Right. Um, and people rebelling against God. Um, so, okay. So, so. I probably, that answer probably is going to generate a lot more questions than. Well, yeah. If you have, if that, if that answer generated more questions, you can feel free to text those in, but we're starting just to recap. What is a Nephilim? We're saying, well, it says in the passage that they're men of renown, warriors mm-hmm. of old. So you can kind of check that off the list. Now we go back to, hey, what are sons of God and the daughters of men? What's what's with that language? Is a son of God really a human male? Well, it could be um, human 
males who have sort of maintained this righteous, I'm going to follow Yahweh, I'm part of this line that will produce the seed, and the rest of humanity is abandoning that. Um, it could be that they were the sons of God were ancient kings mm-hmm. who set themselves up as we are, you know, sons of God and, and everyone else is uh, less than. Or there's still that theory that, no, these could be, you know, angelic beings um, who somehow procreated with human beings. But then those same people would often say that they are, they, that's how the Nephilim were created. Right, right. Um, and then we kind of get stuck saying, yeah, but the Nephilim just appear to be mighty warriors, men, um, yeah. not half angelic right. sort of things. Um, and you'd also have that, that theory would raise all sorts of questions about, wait, how do angelic beings mate with human beings? Exactly. And is that something that we see anywhere else in school? And then how do they show up again in numbers 13? Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, hopefully that uh, answered that question to some degree. Uh, we have to move on, but if number that two. raises new questions, yeah, ask them. Uh, question number two. The Bible says that Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord, which is true. Uh, did they have to do this? I didn't think that the law was written yet. Also, it says Cain is speaking to the Lord. Do they actually meet with God? Uh, I thought that God's glory was so powerful that one would die if they saw it. Great question. Yeah, I love this. Very thought-provoking. I love the first part of the question. And it's about the offering. So really early on, you just read, hey, Adam and Eve ejected from the garden. They have two sons. This is life in a fallen world. It's difficult, but people are still seeking God. Uh, Cain and Abel both bring offerings to the Lord. And I've actually never thought about the fact. I've never asked this question. Um, How how, did did they have to do this? Because when we think of those who know the scriptures, we'll think about sacrifices brought to the Lord in terms of the law of Moses given on Mount Sinai. Here's my covenant with the people of Israel that I've led at, you know, through the Exodus. And, but that this is way, way, way before then. Yeah. So how did they know to bring a sacrifice if there was no law? Good question. And so um, I I think it does get at the, the heart of the question, which is, you know, do they have to do this and why are they doing this? How do they know to do it? Well, they, there seems to be this almost universal human um, experience, which is making sacrifices to deities. Um, Don't forget that Cain and Abel's parents, you know, they walked with God in the garden. And what it seems to be is just this natural outflowing of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, that family's relationship to their creator. And so, yeah, it says in it's Genesis four, it's Abel kept flocks. Cain worked the soil. Uh, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And it's actually doesn't, it's not that odd because you see later in Genesis, you know, you get this kind of uh, mysterious character, Melchizedek, you know, he's a high priest. Uh, it says that he's a priest of the most high God. Abraham ends up giving him a 10th of all of his um, stuff as an offering. And Melchizedek doesn't have the, the Mosaic law either, but he's a priest and he's making sacrifices. 
And it seems like there is either whether it's individual or whether it's, you know, revealed somehow else, these people seem to have an understanding that right worship of God involves sacrifice. Right. So it sounds like you're saying, okay, how did Cain and Abel know to just bring sacrifices? There's kind of two possibilities. One is born out of the Adam and Eve relationship with God that are you saying it's possible that like God just spoke to them or gave instructions as to how their family was to worship that maybe isn't recorded. Um, but there's also this sense in which it's kind of inherent in the, in the human mm-hmm. heart, right? Where like, I think it's Paul in the book of Romans says like, God's written his law onto our hearts, even the, the non-believers, mm-hmm. so that we have to kind of wrestle with, even if we've never heard of the scriptures, we still kind of have this internal code. Mm-hmm. Um, human beings were meant to relate to God and we, we have some impulses uh, to, to follow. So you're saying this is kind of born out of, hey, Adam and Eve, immediate family, we have this special relationship with Yahweh, the creator, and, and they're following the human impulse to honor deity then is that kind of the, the yeah. route you would take yeah absolutely yeah and you do see that all over the world so if mm-hmm. you go to the middle of the bush in africa you have you know um religions that are you know they call it african traditional religions i don't think there's so many they probably don't even have names for them but it's a lot of you know people sacrifice like animal sacrifices and they say well we've been doing this for thousands of years and it almost feels like no matter where you go in the world there is kind of this baseline idea that, it, I mean, the secular West is more and more kind of saying, hey, we're not acknowledging deity, but... Well, we sacrifice of, other things. We just don't sacrifice animals anymore. <laughs> that's true. Well, we could have a whole other discussion <laughs> there. I just mean when you look at world religions in all their vast variety, there is kind of this common thing of, you know, I'm going to go into the Buddhist temple. I'm going to go to the cave in Africa. I'm going to go and I'm going to sacrifice. So mm-hmm. you're, would you say that kind of lines up with this human impulse of sacrificing to deity. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it is a natural, normal human inclination that part of how we relate to the divine is through sacrifice. Right. And there's, there's a lot there too, right. In terms of like what God was doing with the law, Mm -hmm. which if you're reading the Bible in a year, we haven't gotten that far. And then the way God fulfills sacrifice through Jesus. And there's, there's a whole amazing plot line there. But perhaps it starts with this baseline. Hey, I go to honor. There's deity. I want to be in relationship with deity. I want to honor deity. Therefore, I bring a sacrifice. Right. Okay. The other part of it, though, is the other part of the question is really important, too. It is. Can I read that again? Sure. It says, it also. this is the second part. Also, it says Cain is speaking to the Lord. Uh, did they actually meet with God? I thought God's glory is so powerful that that one would die if they saw it. That's, okay. that's awesome. Yes. So, so here's, here's what's lovely about the Cain and Abel story. God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. There's this statement about intimacy that Adam and Eve have with their creator. And then sin gets introduced to the story and things shift for everything. All of creation. All of creation. But what's the very next story? The very next story is about this line and God's still relating to them. God still is speaking with them. There's still this back and forth between humanity and God. It's not as if humanity messed up and then God was just really mad and said, don't ever talk to me again. There's actually a really clear track through the book of Genesis of God speaking with people. So this happens with Cain and Abel. It happens with Abraham. It happens with Isaac. It happens with Jacob. And 
you just keep going. God keeps talking which, to which is, people. Which is soaked in grace. Right. Right. That, that we, in a sense, kind of give God the middle finger, say, let us do life without you and yeah. let us do it in our own way. Uh, but God doesn't really seem to back off at all. Well, and even think, even think of the ways that God comes to Hagar. So Hagar is um, the concubine, or not really a concubine. She's a slave of Sarah, Abraham's wife, Sarah. When Sarah can't have a child, she says, hey, Abraham, we want a child to, to continue on your line. Have, have sex with my slave, Hagar. Hagar sleeps with Abraham. Hagar has a child. And Sarah gets mad and gets jealous and sends her away. Well, God comes to Hagar in the midst of the desert, and it's the God who sees her. Hagar gives God a new name because God comes to her and speaks to her. So you see this, God just keeps doing it. God keeps coming after people and keeps addressing people. Right, which kind of runs counter to this narrative that we've created that the God of the Old Testament is kind of this like grumpy, right. curmudgeon-y, like death to sinners sort of, sort of an image that we generate. When you actually read the scripture, um, I, I think you can see Jesus there. Like it, you, you see that heart of, no, I'm not giving up. Like, no, I'm faithful. I'm, I'm committed to you. Um, but in terms of this, this, this question here, so it says that Cain is speaking to the Lord. So you're saying, hey, Adam and Eve were in this unique place in terms of how they were able to speak to the Lord. Uh, as they um, kind of give God the finger, everything falls apart, <laughs> creation shifts, God's still relating to them. He's still approaching them in grace, but there is this shift that we see. They don't have the ease that they had in the garden, uh, but God God is still speaking. And so this idea, um, sort of inherent in the question, they say, hey, Cain's speaking with the Lord. Did they actually meet with God? I thought God's glory is so powerful that one would die if they saw it. Uh, I think there's examples from Cain and Abel all the way through the scripture of God talking to people without like unveiling the fullness right. of his glory. Well, and even so, and that's a reference to how God shows himself to Moses. He puts him in the rock and God says, if you see my glory, you'll die. So you can see like, as I pass by you, maybe you can see like just the afterglow essentially. Right. Yeah. Um, but Moses is speaking to God in advance of that. So there seems to be a clear distinction between God revealing his glory mm-hmm. and God speaking to people Right. that we can actually see God and meet with God without being exposed to his glory per se. Totally. Yeah. There's actually a lot of ways that God ends up speaking to us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important as well, because that's another assumption we kind of drag in that, oh, if God's going to speak to me, it's going to be like he spoke to Moses right. on Mount right. Sinai and there's going to be thunder and lightning and, and the voice is almost going to knock me over mm-hmm. sort of a deal. Well, Moses had something very unique. He says like, hey, Moses had got to like speak with God face to face and and not die. Okay, that's not happening to Cain and Abel. Like Moses did get to experience something special in terms of face to face speaking with God in terms of uh, God revealing his his glory, some portion of his veiled glory to Moses. Which... Um, but we see God speaking to people in various, I mean, he speaks to a donkey in, in one of the examples, like he's just speaking and it says he's speaking through creation and, and even he appears in people's visions and dreams. And some of them are really vivid and clear. And some of them are 
not clear dreams at all. And you just think, have this stunning variety of how God speaks to people. And I think that actually needs to color our imaginations from the beginning in terms of what did it look like? Well, it didn't look like the garden, but trace your way through scripture, you're going to find 150 different ways that God speaks to people. And if you're listening to this, it means that God can speak to you and he's going to speak to you in a way that makes sense to you. And, and, yeah. And so I do think that's important to say, like, it's not just a thundering voice from the mountain. It's not an all or nothing, you know, show me your glory, I die, or give me nothing at all. Um, God's incredible, and he uh, works in an incredibly diverse number of ways with humanity. Perfect. And but I think, are we going to do one more? I think we should call it. But I think that kind of answers the Cain and Abel question, right? Hopefully. They're bringing offerings to the Lord. Um, we're, our best guess is that it was, it's something kind of innate in the human heart, but maybe born out of the, the special relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. Um, Cain's speaking to the Lord, um, which happens all through the scriptures, cover to cover. Did they actually meet with God? Uh, I don't picture Cain and Abel meeting with God the way that Adam and Eve did. I do. Um, do you? Yeah. Like walking in the cool of the day, like he's just physically represented before. Well, it doesn't say that, but yeah. That's how you picture it. Yeah. Oh, see, that's interesting. I think I would picture it uh, more as in the way that he would be speaking to people in in the middle part of scripture <laughs> in terms of like, hey, you know, God, God's constantly speaking, giving direction, giving insight, giving revelation. He spoke to the prophets. I never picture him appearing in it, you know, to physically before the prophets, but he spoke volumes through them. So that's kind of, that's kind of where my mind goes. Um, but neither of us were there. No. So, so we don't know. Uh, did they actually meet with God? Apparently that's a matter of debate <laughs> in, in this room in terms of how God appeared to them. Yeah. Uh, great questions. Now, hopefully that answered the last one. Uh, keep them coming. We will do our uh, best to answer as many of them as we can. Uh, the number for those is on the homepage of the website. So respokane.org. Uh, scroll down to the bottom. You can text in your questions anytime. Uh, we uh, hope that was helpful and hopefully we can uh, answer more soon. again for listening to the Q&A podcast. If you have questions you'd like answered, text in your question to 208-503-3865.